Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 446. And this week I'm joined by Joe Wiley for a frankly amazing conversation. Obviously, Joe Wiley is a broadcasting legend and I've been meaning to have Joe on for a long while, but even I wasn't expecting the conversation to unfold the way it did, man. It was a really nice conversation. We got into some really personal stuff. I think both of us kind of laid it on the line a few times and I don't think either of us were particularly expecting to so it kind of went there unexpected but I'm forever grateful for my guests for to kind of never failing to just step up and be so open for 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 the listeners really um, and then we also get into loads of Joe's career and some amazing stories of Joe's so humble and doesn't realise how much a part of history she's been and how many times she's been a part of history. And you might not realise as a listener. So I hope you're going to enjoy this one. And listen, before we get into it, we talk about music, my music career in here, obviously. We're always brought to you by Speech Development, com, which is my web store, which you can go to to buy my music, my DVDs, my merch, all sorts of good stuff and generally support the podcast. Another place you can do that is patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip. But another place that you can just keep regular contact with me is twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip. Yo, I've started streaming on Twitch and so far all I've been streaming is a game called Rust on a server made by the comedian and podcaster Limmy. So I'm on there, Limmy's on there. There's loads of good people on there. 1030 roscoe Barmer, and it's it's mad it's hard to explain but if you tune in you'll understand this next wipe so basically the map wipes every two weeks and we all start from scratch again it's kind of a survival thing you wake up with just a rock and a, a flaming torch and then you forage and build until you're ending up driving at people and killing each other with machine guns um but the next version of the map that we're doing is going to be a medieval version so if you want to see me and limmy and loads of others kind of all role playing as weird medieval people then head to twitch.tv forward slash scroobius pipio now there's a good chance that's the last thing you want to see so obviously don't head over if you don't fancy it but it's all free to watch so come and join the party. I've had loads of people, I post about it on socials, and I've had loads of people going, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. And that's fine, but all you need to do is come and watch, and you'll you'll know, you know, it's it's, it's one of them. It's the, it's the same as when I started the podcast. There were loads of people going, I don't know what a podcast is, or I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, that's cool. You don't have to know, it's not essential knowledge, but if you want to find out, you can. You know, you just go and have a look, and then you go, all right, that's what it is, you know? So it's as simple as that. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, may I recommend some of the previous episodes with some of Joe's previous colleagues and people like that. We've had Fern Cotton on twice, actually. We've had Zane Lowe on. We've had Colin Murray. Who else? Loads of good people. L- loads of broadcasters. Huey Morgan, Hugh Stevens. Annie Mack fairly recently. That was a great one. Uh, John Kennedy. Yeah, loads of really good people over the years. There's more that I'm forgetting, so um, just have a browse of the back catalogue. But for now, let's get into the chat 
This is Joe Wiley on the Distraction Pieces podcast. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. Right, I'm here today with Joe Wiley. How are you, Joe? I'm really good, actually. The sun is shining and, yeah, everything's okay. It's mad how influential the weather is, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, we we pushed this chat back a couple of times because it's been a really hard time to know where your head's at with pandemics mm. and everything that's going on in Ukraine. So, kind of, yeah, I, I, I wanted to d- double-check in on how you are in yourself, in your head, everything. Are you are you good? Are you holding up okay, I guess? Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't have done this a month ago, uh, which is when the whole uh, Ukrainian-Russian situation happened because I was just like, nothing feels relevant. <laughs> everything yeah. just feels ridiculous. And yeah, found it very, very tough. It was very, oh, yeah, it's not great now, but it was a very, very scary time. I just felt paralysed by fear, I think, about the whole situation. And uh, I'm very bleak and very desperate. But you know, uh, you put one foot in front of the other and you just carry on and, you know, what can we do? So I, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling okay. And like like you say, the, the weather definitely helps, but it does feel like we've kind of settled into some kind of, I don't know what we've settled into really, some kind of acceptance and observation of the situation there. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? I think it's, it's we have regularly jarring moments in the modern world because the world is so global now and let me make that make more sense but we're so exposed to everything we're 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 exposed to the whole world rather than our our small world and we can't we've not necessarily adapted or evolved to be able to handle all of that yet so as stupid as it is things like nice weather bring you back into your small world a little bit even if it's briefly make you go all right in this little moment I can get through this. I can handle yeah. this, you know. I think it's about it's about feeling safe and controlling something, isn't it? Controlling your own situation. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to go out. I just hunkered down. I quite sometimes if I feel a bit unsettled, I I don't want to see anybody. I just go through moods of just like I I'm really happy just on my own. Don't want to talk to anybody and yeah. that includes my family, yeah. everyone. I just want to be in the house on my own doing my own stuff. And uh, and that's what I was like I think when we first started about talking doing to do this. Yeah. And, but also, I, I love gardening and right. gardening has been a real, um, it's my refuge and it makes me really happy and just kind of balances me. So this week, I've just been in the garden. It's that time of year when there is so much to do. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really, that is a lot about controlling a situation. So I don't have to think about anything else at all. I just have to think about getting that weed out of the ground and then putting a plant and waiting for it to blossom. And, you know, there's that whole lovely cycle of planting something, seeing it grow, and it's very rewarding. It teaches you patience and it's it's a very healthy pursuit. Yeah, it's it's not something that can be fast-forwarded. And we want so much, again, in modern society to be kind of one-click ordering. We want it immediately. And yeah. going into things like nature is far more, it's powerful in that way because it's out of, of your control. I love finding those things that click with the individual. I'm When I'm writing, I find I do my best writing if I'm near some water. It can be on water, it can be a beach, it can be a lake, it can be anything. But as long as I'm near some kind of water, that's when I can just flow and flow and flow. If I'm not, and again, a lot of the pandemic where it didn't, it wasn't appropriate to be going out places, I was hitting so many walls because I was like, right, I can't. It was a godsend having a garden to go into, but still, even that, I was like, I need to get near some 
the sound of some water and yeah it all flows then does it matter what kind of water it is is it no. do you like the sea when there are lots of waves or do you like it when it's a lake yeah i love them all i love them all i love either yeah it, it, again i guess it's that any of the the natural s- 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 sounds of it all and again it's that thing that we were saying j- j- just now of almost the opposite kind of realizing there's things that are so more more grander than you and bigger than you and out of your control that there's just these amazing tides and whatnot that yeah yeah but it it just con- continues it just keeps on going I'm, i i yeah. love water as well i live in the midlands which is like the worst place in the world to live. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah. i just I, act, I i'm probably like you i just seek out bodies of water wherever yeah. i can so i can go and swim in them or sit by them um and we've got a little stream at the end of our garden but it's it's not enough i have to actually yeah. get in the water to um sort myself out yeah. swimming pools i love swimming pools i'm so it's my happiest place i just love um that feeling of getting to a swimming pool either in the evening or first thing in the morning and there's nobody there and the sight of a swimming pool not a ripple not a body in that water and you being the first person to break the surface and to just submerge yourself underneath it's that is my favorite thing i've sent out a message just before this started because me and a friend of mine like to do a bit of wild swimming but then also just early morning sea swims so nice cold kind of well it's it's quiet and at the end of last kind of summer i did a few night swims on my own and they were so much nicer than the early morning ones because it's weird you've still got that stillness and emptiness but as stupid as it sounds the seas had all day to warm up so it's still quite cold and quite jarring but it's not quite that first early morning one where <laughs> half of the experience is that jarringness and getting used to it but the night swims were so relaxing so i yeah. messaged a mate of mine as today was again the first nice day in a while saying if we get a, f- a few more days uh, like this, let's keep an eye on the tides and go and have, yeah. have a night swim because, yeah, it's weird, yeah. those things I, that are I, so I went, relaxing. Yeah, I went this week, I went to um, Hampstead Pools, the ladies' pools, and I've never yeah. been there before. But, oh my God, I couldn't believe how cold it was. Yeah. It was nine nine degrees. I was the only person in a wetsuit and that was so shameful. I was so <laughs> embarrassed that I was wearing a wetsuit. I was mortified because <laughs> there were all these other women there and they were just all ages and all body mm-hmm. sizes and all nationalities and they were just gliding through the water. And I was like, how the hell are you doing that? But, but you, the feeling after is incredible, isn't it? It's beautiful, but it's completely there should be absolutely no shame in that because it's a mistake when people think it's all about like cold water swims and that are all about the shock and taking it um the 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 recommended way for cold water swims is to walk in gradually even though that seems like i was always taught as a kid you have to jump in and get your shoulders under and then it's okay (laughs) no your body has to acclimatize and although the walking in gradually feels like you're, you're, you're dragging it out or you're being weak or whatever else it's like no it's allowing your body to acclimatize it's removing the shock factor it's just allowing it all to completely have all the positive benefits of that of that yeah totally totally it hurts though i don't know how you find it but when it's really really cold you go through different feelings of the the bits that are hurting you the most so first of all you put your feet in you're like oh my god that's cold and then it goes up your legs and you're like that's cold and then it gets to your bum and you're like oh Oh my god! It. Yep. it really, really hurts, aches. <laughs> it's it's funny feeling. you mentioning swimming pools though, because the, the, the second you mentioned that, I thought of my local pool with a similar experience to yours, as you were saying. There was, I'd go there, and you know, I do a bit of CrossFit. I keep, I try to keep in good sh- shape. I'd go there to swim, 
And after however many lengths I was exhausted, there would be an old man or an old woman just going back and forth and back and forth. And I've gone in there thinking, I'm in all right shape, exhausted, flailing by the end. And they're just spending an hour just going back and forth. So it is, again, it's getting used to it, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's the best tiredness, I think, that you get yeah. after a swim. It's, I don't know what it is, but it just descends on you and it's just real peace, but, you know, like bone exhaustion yeah. i don't know why but i love that feeling i'm really using every it. part of your body i guess but um, yeah well there's loads i want to talk about normally i rewind all the way back to the start of people's uh, lives but there's a couple of things more, more recently i kind of want to start with and one was the party that ended the world essentially um i spoke to S- simon Pegg about it on this podcast <laughs> and adam buxton because it was for the a select group of people that was the last social event before the world literally closed down and there was a global pandemic and you were there and you were DJing (laughs) and I was DJing as well and it was it was Simon Pegg's 50th but what a surreal last social event for a year or two right yeah there was the maddest mix of people from I know the the comedians I love to literally Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill and Olivia Coleman and all this, but then I know. there's Adam Buxton and and, and Michael Smiley and how David do you Williams find, and Chris yeah, Martin and yeah. <laughs> how do you find things like that? Because I'm really inexperienced in these kind of celebrity events, so I was kind of I couldn't wait to get behind the decks. I was like, I, I feel safe there, like I feel like I'm, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing there. In amongst it, I was I was a mess, but um, you're probably more used to that kind of thing. How how do you find those kinds of of evenings? No, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I do radio for a reason. I like to be in a studio <laughs> yeah. on my own. That's my comfort zone. So when you're yeah. suddenly confronted um, with these mega famous people and just having conversations, I genuinely find it quite hard having a party conversation when yeah. you're. I'm so bad at doing small talk. Yeah, I really really same. struggle. But but that that party, I actually knew quite a lot of people there. Like from over the yeah. years, it was a really lovely collection of people. So it was genuinely really nice to catch up with everyone. And I'd been asked to do it by Simon's wife, by Maureen. Yeah. And she gave me, I mean, it was the easiest DJ gig ever. She just gave me all his favourite records, which just so happened to be all my favourite records. So it was loads of um, goth stuff, which yeah. you know, I've never been able to DJ and play goth yeah. music before. And I was so happy. Yeah. Yeah, it was really I love good. It. But the, and the really funny moment was when someone came over and, and we were waiting for Simon. We didn't know what was going to happen, when he was going to arrive, and what the, the protocol was. And then someone just came over and whispered in my ear, "Okay, so Tom Cruise is going to be arriving in a minute, and nothing happens until Tom Cruise gets here." And I had no idea that he was going to be there. Yeah, me and um, Sean Keaveney had been joking about it because on the invitation it said the parking is here. And if anyone needs to use the helicopter pad, the details are here. And he was like, helicopter pad, <laughs> cruise has got to be coming. And we were joking about it. And then when he walked in the room, we were like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but he was lovely. Thing. But my really son lovely. ended up talking to him a lot um, because my son is a, wants to be a writer and loves film and all that kind of stuff. And so um, Chris Martin, who's known Jude since he was a baby, did this lovely, wonderful introduction to tom just to kind of put them together and and they just stood and chatted for ages and ages and ages and tom was so lovely and helpful and took him really seriously so i'm i'm now um you know i'm a signed up fan he was he was very very nice and he was offering he was offering jude work experience on the next um film and jude was like oh my god i've got work experience on the next film and then of course lockdown so it never happened yes (laughs) oh wow yeah that kind of again i remember on the night 
talking to Simon saying, yeah, I'm flying off in a couple of days and we're filming this and then I'm away for this many months and it's really tough and all this. And then, yeah, a week later, it's like, no, you're not. That's that's not happening. So speaking of the pandemic, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about in the recent times, before I do want to go back because I want to hear your journey we've got you were part of my journey which is an amazing thing so I want to talk about all of that but something that really blew me away during the pandemic was the work you and your sister and your mum did Um, yeah yeah, Francis can you tell me a little bit about that journey and and how it all kind of unfolded because it was a tense time at the start right because oh god it was yeah, I mean, it was awful. So my sister's got learning disabilities and she lives in a home, a men-cap home. So, mm. care, um, yeah, care home. There's about, I think there were seven of them living in there. And when it all happened and everyone went to lockdown, I mean, Frances comes home every third weekend and she has slightly autistic tendencies. So she really, really needs a routine. She likes mm. to know when she's going to see mum and dad again, when she's going to be doing this, that and the other. So when all of a sudden everything locked down and it was very apparent that she wasn't actually going to be able to come home. My head nearly burst. I was just like, hang on, how is this going to work? She can't cope. This is never, ever going to happen. I just just couldn't compute how we were going to deal with the whole situation. But then we had no choice. I mean, we were literally not allowed to go and see her. And that was Mm -hmm. very claustrophobic, very panicky kind of feeling. And I was just so worried that she was going to try and run away. I was worried about my parents, about how they were going to be about it. And to be fair to her, she dealt with it very well. And the carers obviously looked after all the people that she lived with and looked after them very well. But it was the longest period of time that we spent away from her. Mm. It was horrific. And I, in my head, I kept thinking, God, this is really, really strange. And I was trying to observe other people who had siblings or children who um, had disabilities and were living in homes. And I just remember reaching out to a few of them saying, what, are you going to visit them? Have they had their vaccination? What's going on? And we all were saying the same thing. We were like, well, no, we've not really heard anything about Mm. people who learn disabilities. And there was a lot of conversation going on about people in care homes who were elderly and people, you know, about them getting the vaccination, about, you know, visitation for them. But it was just like this blanket... (laughs) Group of people who it was very no much one an spoke age-based about. conversation, wasn't it? It was, mm. it was, it was all ranked age-based. That was the whole yeah. thing of the vaccine. It was all these bands yeah. of ages. So yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a different thing. When it's like, well, how yeah. do we go no, about if, this? Yeah, so, no, I think just nobody particularly thought about them or talked about them at all. Anyway, um, I got offered my vaccine and. I was really shocked that Frances hadn't been offered her vaccine before me because obviously she's got health issues and I haven't. I was like, this is a bit weird. And I I remember tweeting about it and just saying, I've been offered my vaccination, Frances hasn't, this is strange. And then she actually contracted COVID in the home. And I remember being on the train, it was all tying in with when I was doing my radio show and I'd get on the train to go home and it was like, there was a new thing, day after day after day that kind of progressed. And she ended up, there was a weekend when again we couldn't see her and we were phoning the home and I was saying, is she okay? And they were going, yeah, yeah, no, she's fine, she's fine. And I was like, in my head, I just kept thinking, she can't be fine, she's got COVID, you know, this is really yeah. weird. And she just didn't sound right at all. And then I remember speaking, or we, we had communication with the home, and I said, um, have you checked her oxygen levels? And they said, oh, no, we, we've sent off some oximeters, I think they're called. It feels, mm-hmm. I've forgotten all the details now, isn't yeah. this weird? No, no, no. Um, so I said, have you got the oximeter? And, and they said, no, no, we've sent away for them. We're waiting for them to arrive. And immediately I panicked and thought, oh my God, we should be checking our oxygen levels. So we'd got one in the house. And I said to my son, I've got to go and do the show. Can you just drop it in at Francis' home? We just just leave it there. Yeah. 
And he said, yeah, okay, drove over there. I came to do my show. And then by the time I got off the train at the end of my show, I went to get in my car and my husband was parked outside the station. And I went over to the car and I went, Steve, I've got my car, you idiot. I can drive myself home. And he mm. just went, no, no, just um, get in the car. Francis is in hospital. And um, oh, wow. I just, you know, we just, uh, I need to take you home. And that was it. That was just when I panicked wildly. And what had happened was they did the oxygen levels, did the oxygen testing on her and everyone else in the house. And two of them were extraordinarily ill without mm. realising it, which yeah. is what kept happening. And again, it's kind of, it's it's one of those weird things of, obviously when there's a pandemic, there's so many things to think about and to take into account. But if you hadn't had your priority there, then that wouldn't have been, mm. that wouldn't, that potentially wouldn't have been... F- found and wouldn't have been noticed because you were there to make it you and your family of course were there to make it that was your priority that yeah that's what changed that you know that was all we were I mean she was all we were thinking about we were just um you know absolutely this whole feeling of blind panic inside and just wanting to look after her but not being able to not being able to physically have her there looking after her at all was unbearable because she can't um, she can speak she can vocalize but other people won't understand. And also when she's poorly, as happened, they took her into the hospital and she hates being restrained at all. So she mm. just went crazy in the hospital and rampaged all the way around the hospital. Right. Um, my mum and dad went in because you know, she's their daughter and they didn't care whether they caught it or not. Yeah. So my mum went in, she was allowed in and Frances was, is very big, very strong. Uh, if you've seen Harvey Price, she's kind of got that sort of strength. Right. And she was knocking people over. They were trying to hold her down. Someone at one point, my mum said, someone at some point went, that's Joe Wiley's sister. She's got COVID. And everyone just scattered and ran away from her because they'd followed my tweets. Oh, man. That's so ridiculous. in the midst of all this, my mum was laughing. She was like, oh, God. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Well, the bottom line then, that, so they checked her oxygen. They said she has to have oxygen put in her, otherwise it's game over. But mm. they couldn't get the oxygen mask on her because she was um, she's too strong and she was just resisting it. And there was no way that they could get oxygen into her. And she just deteriorated from that point on for the next 48 hours. Um, and that was when I ended up doing you know messages in the middle of the night, just saying, does anybody know when it comes to people with learned disabilities, how we get oxygen in them? Surely this is not the first time this has ever happened. Yeah. And it was, it was really lovely. And so many people came to our help and so many people spoke up and realised, you know, you, you realised that other people were in the same situation as yourself. Mm. But it did it did get to the point where we had a consultation at four in the morning with my mum on Zoom in the hospital They because they kept trying to knock Frances out, trying, trying to sedate her and all the drugs have the opposite effect on her just because mm. of her body makeup. So the more they tried to sedate her, the more she fought it. So they couldn't even knock her out. So at four o'clock in the morning, my mum was in one room. We were on Zoom in our kitchen and we had a conversation with the doctor who just said, there's nothing we can do. We can't intubate her. We can't put her into a coma because when she comes out of the coma, she will just fight it so much that we won't be able to help her. So the only thing that you can do is we'll arrange for you to take her home and it will have end of life care. And it might take four or five days. We don't know, but she will eventually go. And we just sat there blinking. (laughs) My mum was like, okay, okay. It was just awful. Yeah. It was awful. Absolutely Mm -hmm. unimaginable. But because of your tweets and (laughs) because of Frances being Joe Wiley's sister and she's got COVID. (laughs) Because of her strength. Honestly, it was all down to Frances' strength because what they did in the end, they couldn't sedate her. They couldn't get oxygen into her. They made a at the hospital, they made a tent which pumped oxygen into her. Yeah. Um, so that helped a little bit. But ultimately, they said, well, there's nothing we can do. We're just going to reduce, take everything away and see what happens. Mm. And 
she came through. Yeah. <laughs> My mum's a very, very strong Christian and she obviously has her beliefs, but yeah. a, a miracle definitely happened. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And and as said, the kind of, the, the profile that it got did bring attention to this overlooked part of the pandemic. And as you said, so many people who were going through similar and didn't know what to do with that same kind of screaming into the void. So it really did help and get attention yeah. in the right place, right? Yeah, yeah. Because no, we, we'd been asking for ages. We'd been contacting, um, you know, the the doctor surgery where she was um, treated. We were contacting all kinds of people saying, please, can I have a vaccine? Please, can I have a vaccine? Because she didn't fit certain criteria. Mm. Um, they just said, no, nope, it's just going to have to wait. And that's why she didn't get her vaccination. And it was only when her case came about and it all became apparent. And we had conversations, you know, the, the government, I think, just weren't aware of the plight of people with learned disabilities. So the fact that we were able to raise the profile meant that they took into consideration and something happened and people did get the vaccinations. So yeah. yeah, thank God for Frances and thank God she's still here today. We're very lucky. Other people haven't been so lucky. The, you know, people that she yeah. lived with lost their lives. Two of them died. Yeah, yeah. It's heartbreaking. But it's as said, as you say, there's a, 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 a there's a miracle in there with that heartbreak. So it's a, yeah, yeah. It's a powerful thing. And hopefully, yeah. again, it can highlight such oversights for for things in the future you know it's uh it's yeah. an important one i really hope so i really hope so i do i really do feel that people with learned disabilities are now taken a bit more seriously people are aware of them mm-hmm. um they're you know appearing in soap operas and yeah, on television yeah. and you know it's just they're just ex- becoming more and more accepted there's a lot more work to do but it's a hell of a lot better than when she was when she was born and when you know the the horrible situation my mum had with having a a disabled child yeah. it's just literally just okay just go away deal with it <laughs> yeah take them home yeah deal with yeah. it in your own in your own time um mm. well uh, let's kind of r- rewind back because i want to f- find out your kind of start on your journey into broadcasting and that because as i said there was a point in your career where you were were regularly referred to as the most powerful w- woman in in in, in music and st- stuff like that which obviously grand titles are all over exaggerated but yeah totally how how what was your route into radio did you always know you wanted to broadcast and wanted to present was that your your goal as a kid no no, no. My, my dad was an electrician. My mum was a postmistress and sometimes a cleaner. So we come from Northampton, you know, <laughs> mum, my grandma worked in a factory. We just didn't have that kind of awareness that jobs like mine were an option. So all I knew was that we really liked music. Music was a big part of Frances, my sister's life. She just, it was a thing that bonded us. And we used to, Brilliant. classic thing of sitting on my mum and dad's bed on a Saturday or sun, Sunday morning listening to Junior Choice. And I used to record the songs and then I used to make a radio show with her. So I obviously I had it. a love for it. And I love music, but I didn't know it was a job that you could do ever, ever. And I always thought I was going to be a speech therapist or an occupational therapist working right. with people with disabilities because that was that was my whole world. We grew up. My mum was um, quite a campaigner. She set up dinner dances to raise money. She set up a toy library for people with um, special needs. So it, that was my world. And that's what I thought I was going to go into. I mean, you, you, you would have been a... a- a, sh- a shining light in there as well, because speech therapy is another one that only in recent years has it started to move forward. I think, like w- when I was a kid having a, st- a stammer, yeah, my parents put me in speech therapy briefly and then took me out because they kind of said, "This speech therapist is acting as if you're something broken that needs to be f- fixed, and you're not." Yeah, like we 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 want to look at techniques and we want to look at this, but we don't want you to grow up thinking there's something wrong with you because. 
It's just yeah. how you speak. And so much of speech therapy back then was, here's the tools, here's the drills. And it was kind of perceived as a, if you work hard enough, it will be fixed. If it's not mm. fixed, then you obviously aren't working hard enough. And that's not how yeah. it works. And that, yeah, again, there's been so much, as you say, about with disability as well. There's been so yeah. much progression in recent years to more understanding of of what it is and how it all all works. So do you wish do you wish you had more speech therapy when you were younger then? Would that have no, helped you? No, I don't. I think I was so, so lucky to have the parents I had because the, they just made me more comfortable with it and more relaxed yeah. with it. I, I, I say it too much, but I genuinely these days, I grew to think of it as an accent and it's just how I talk. This is like any accent. Um, yeah. And then the more relaxed you are, the more it will go. And again, the more tired I am, it will come more, but it isn't particularly a stress or a nerves thing as many people perceive. And it's so hard to get your head around it's like it's still yeah. not understood so the more i was r- relaxed with it the more comfortable i became and it's weird in acting and stuff uh, with roles and characters if i do enough prep i can get it completely under control it's exhausting really? it's exhausting and end of a shooting day i feel like i don't want to talk to anyone because i don't because i realize similar to, to you were saying earlier i'm one as well who's at times I need to n- not socialise at all. And I always thought that was just antisocial or whatever. And I came to realise it's because when I'm talking to people, even if it's in the background, I'm doing work, I'm, I'm mm. clawing it back, I'm getting the stutter under control. Whereas yeah. when I'm on my own and watching a film or whatever, I'm Freedom. not going to do any of that. I'm just relaxing yeah. and it's all... Because my yeah. thoughts d- haven't got a stammer. So so if I'm on my own, that just all can flow freely. So, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, it must be exhausting. I, I'm... Re- I'm- I'm so fascinated by by speech and communication because yeah, yeah. um, Frances couldn't speak at all when we were little. She yeah. had no way of communicating and all she would do was, would grunt, be grunt or shout and just kind of make vocal noises, explosions. And we went to see um, a play about Helen Keller and mm. how um, sign language became um, used. Yeah. And I remember sitting there with mum and she kept, came away from it and she went... Well, I wonder if that would help Francis if we should learn about sign language. So she went away and researched it and we started to make up our own signs. And I can remember to this day, you know, that's, that's grandma, that's mum, that's dad, that's Joe. Amazing. And we made our own signs, but it almost unlocked something in Francis' brain so she could begin to vocalise and she started to make her own sounds. So she can speak today and I can recognise her speech and a lot of people can, but but not everybody can and she can't control because her voice box is quite deformed she can't control control the sound of it so she's really loud but the fact that once she got her head around the fact that you could communicate with your hands did something in her brain that made her be able to form sentences it's it's really interesting and communication is fascinating anyway because you touched upon earlier how you will understand francis but some people might Mm. not it's amazing how quickly that can be got used to and understood Stood as well. Um, there's a podcaster called, or comedian called Theo Von, who's got a podcast called This Past Weekend, and he had uh, an extreme, like a bodybuilder guy um, or a strongman guy who's got Down syndrome on. And the first ten minutes of the conversation, only audio. I'm I'm only listening. The first ten minutes, I'm thinking this is a tough listen. You know, I'm yeah. struggling to understand. After that, it was like you barely notice it. And when I had, yeah. I had. Um, a, a performer comedian on here called a Tourette's hero. And it was a similar one. I said to everyone in the intro, look, this is probably the first time someone in, a, 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 with a stammer has sat down with someone with, a, with Tourette's and recorded an hour long conversation. But within 10 minutes, I, I said, again, I was honest. I was like, it'll be jarring at first. It'll be jarring. Yeah. And you, you'll think this is hard to listen to, but 
all the feedback I got was within 10, 15 minutes, you forgot about it. It wasn't yeah. there anymore because our brains are built to communicate and to translate and to yeah. decipher language, I guess. Yeah. Now, thank God. Thank God this is happening now. Thank, yeah. thank goodness, you know, people, yeah. are, people are doing this. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you, yeah. you, you, you would make radio shows with Francis, essentially, with Paul's yeah. played a tape recording. How did you actually come to actually moving into radio and becoming a broadcaster? Yeah, I did really badly in my exams. Um, I did. <laughs> I ended up getting into Brighton Poly uh, to do applied language. It was the only course I could get on because I got such low grades. Yeah. Uh, so I was. I was. It was vaguely language related. And again, going back to all the speech language stuff, I thought, yeah, I'll do it. That's great. So I did three years doing applied language. I mean, I barely understood. It was all. Oh no, that's not true. I did find it interesting because we did semantics and syntax and phonetics. Yeah. So I, again, I, I am fascinated with the way words are formed and mm-hmm. the way we speak and the way words have meaning. But we also learned Russian and we learned Amazing. French, but I wasn't very good at Russian. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's not helping me currently. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> um, but because we used to have a teacher just used to come in and speak Russian to us. And, it, you know, the idea was that if you're spoken to enough in a language, you'll pick yeah. it up. And I, I just didn't. So at the end of my degree, I didn't know what to do with myself at all. And I just had uh, like my final meeting with one of the lecturers. And he said, well, where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I just love music. I and that's like the only thing I really love. And he said, well, there is a radio station, Radio Sussex, and there's a programme that goes out on a Sunday night. Maybe you should contact them. And it was it was basically like the evening session it was yeah. an hour and a half it was called turn it up and anybody who's into music could get involved and we could you could go along you could do interviews and ultimately if you're good enough you could get to present the show and that's what I did and it was an amazing place some really really talented people were there Clive Myrie who is now you know has been doing all the news broadcasts from yeah. Ukraine and does mastermind yeah. he was one of my friends we were both down there just wow. kind of chancing it <laughs> I but love it, it. it yeah, but it was it was essentially it was just you know a free for all of anybody who had a passion for music could go along, and that's where I got into radio. Mm. So, so again, you say it was kind of a, 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 almost a training ground, I guess, for the evening sessions because because that was where you and Steve Lamac really kind of cemented yourselves as as tastemakers at the time. And it is it's such a there's such history in that. Not even necessarily, I'm never sure of the actual time slots, but of that role. At Radio One, from Peel to you and Steve, Zane Lowe, Hugh Stevens. I think there's there's so many people who it's such an important point because it's the point on Radio One that maybe isn't focused purely on numbers. Not that mm. it's not any of it's focused purely on numbers, but that, that the key part is numbers. It's it's just late. I always remember when I was offered a show on my radio sh- a show I did briefly on XFM. I was asked if I wanted. 10 p.m. or midnight and I asked for midnight because I didn't want anyone interfering I I said (laughs) I want to be out the way I want to be out the way so I can just do my things and then people are coming there by choice rather than stumbling upon it and I don't want to cause any problems and that's that kind of that's where I saw you 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 and Steve Lamack with the evening sessions as said Zane down the line Hugh on some of his how was that to have a big platform but also to just get to revel in all this new and exciting music. It was it was really scary. Steve and I didn't know each other beforehand. Right. I was I was booking bands on the word, so I kind of right. deviated after doing my my radio. I I did a year of radio journalism after doing Turn It Up, so that was my first proper training in radio, and that was where it became very apparent that all I wanted to do was be a, a music DJ because yeah. there were other people out there and they were chasing stories and being proper journalists. Yeah, I did that. Then I 
didn't have a job at the end of that. That all kind of ended. And I wrote to Charlie Parsons, who set up Club X. I don't know if you remember Club yeah, X and yeah. Planet 24. And I worked on Club X. That was my first job in TV. But Amazing. again, booking bands. Yeah. And Charlie just took a punt on me just because I like music. And he said, OK, well, do you think you can get some bands on the show? So we did that. I had the wedding present playing on Club X, I think. It was mad. It was Amazing. crazy. And then then doing the word. So How was the word? Because again, that had some amazing performances on it, didn't it? Like literally historical type stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the music that was around at that time I absolutely love with a passion so yeah. it was it was Nirvana and it was L7 and it was yeah. Dinosaur Junior Sugar Cubes Hole all those bands were quite quite grungy I suppose and they yeah. uh, you know and the word just loved the fact that it was anarchic and you never knew who was going to do what and every artist because it was live every artist just played up because you could and you know you got yeah. talked about and it was such an exciting period of time in in television every every single band wanted to outdo each other i remember dinosaur junior wouldn't stop playing and so at the end of it there's this guy called barry who was a sound engineer was running around pulling the plugs out of the speakers and out of the amps to try and stop them and they would have had so many amps they were massive i spent a weird amount of time with dinosaur junior because for a period for some reason we had the same manager as them in america so wow we'd go to their shows and that come to some of our shows i remember the only time i've watched a full american football match it was in a bar with dinosaur jr that was like well i don't care about american football but i'm not going home i'm here with Dino- <laughs> I'm in i'm in, I'm in colorado somewhere with with dinosaur jr so, so yeah yeah that sounds amazing though that must yeah, have been it was. a dream again a dream job already yeah, no, it really was. I'd got a baby by that point. I'd got my, my daughter, India, yeah. and she used to come to work with me all the time like as a little baby. And I had a Manny, a friend of mine who looked after her, and she used Brilliant. to come to the show. It was it was very funny. Um, I remember the Mannix, because the Mannix, you had to do the whole set rehearsal beforehand. And the Mannix did their, I can't remember what song it was they were going to do. But of course, as soon as we were live, they decided to do Fuck Queen and Country. So like expletives, did. of course. Yeah. And L7, she dropped her trousers and, yep. you know, this is a lovely shot, <laughs> beaver shot. Yeah, infamous yeah. shot. But it was a it was a really great time. Um, the most exciting time in my career, I think. It was it was good fun to do. And then there's a guy called Jeff Smith, who is now the head of music at Radio 2 and Six Music. And he was the evening sessions producer. Right. So he chose Steve Lamack because Steve was an enemy journalist. I was doing The Word and he chose a couple of other people, Richard Easter and Claire Sturgis, and tried us all out on the evening session. Decided he liked me and Steve and we just got to do the show together. But we'd never done anything until we were like on air. That was the first time that we'd properly done a radio show together. And wow. we were there at a golden time. We were just so incredibly lucky. And we didn't, you know what it's like when you're in the eye of a storm when something's going on, you're not you're yeah. not aware. You just know that Radiohead have got a new record out and you absolutely love it. There's this band called Oasis. I remember our producer coming in with a bit of vinyl just going, this is Alan McGee's just said we have to play this. It's called Columbia. Look, we, you know, he's very insistent that we play it on the show. And so we put it on and we played it. And that was the birth of Oasis. It was full of those unbelievable Amazing. moments. And again, it's kind of, as you say, the timing of it is perfect because it was also that period where these indie bands and alternative bands were crossing over to become huge mainstream acts so Mm. it kind of it went nicely along your journey as such that you'd get to break so many of these bands and be their first big airplay or whatever else and then by the time you were doing the joe wiley show and in this huge you know great (laughs) slot with loads of listeners these were people that you'd 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 been playing for ages and they yeah (laughs) That you'd yeah, known which for was a while. lovely. Like you had the real knowledge of it, you know. Yeah, no, it was nice because they, yeah, they they were just people I was very familiar with, and I was playing um, 
Yeah, so I was I was very very lucky, very lucky. Yeah. So how was it when you you came away from the evening sessions and got the Joe Wiley show and were you know had this huge audience and kind of a different yeah. set of rules, I guess. Your 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 job isn't simply to go. Oh, here's this amazing new band called Oasis. You've got to to please the masses as well and find the balance of 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 bringing what got you there, your your passion and, and knowledge, and making sure you're. Yeah, you're 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 playing the right stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a really difficult decision to leave the evening session. I was very, very aware that I was moving to mainstream daytime, so mm-hmm. there has to be compromise, and you know, I had to balance that out. But and one of the driving motivations was that my daughter used to cry every night when I went out to do the evening session because she didn't see me at all, and right. I I was just feeling really bad that I was missing so much of her life. So I thought. You know, I'll be doing a daytime show. I can get to take her to school in the morning. I can pick her up and spend the evenings with her. So that was a key factor in making that decision. Um, But also, you know, I was being offered the most amazing job in the world to be able to play some records that I didn't necessarily like, but also to be able to play things and artists and bring people through to a much, much bigger audience, which is a gift. I mean, what, how amazing, you know, fantastic to be able to do that. Completely. And that's where, as said, the kind of the, the outlandish name of people saying that you were the most powerful a woman in music at the time because of that slot and because of that audience. And again, as I said earlier, obviously that's silly and, and overblown, but did, did you ever feel any pressure of that kind of thing of, as you said, having that amazing opportunity to, to break acts in, in such a way? I don't think, way? I think I'm quite, I think I was quite naive and um, blissfully unaware of, I mean, I'd never heard the powerful woman bit until mm. you said that. Right. Um, all I was aware was that, that I had an amazing opportunity to play new artists and when we were sorting out the contracts or talking about what the job was going to be I was very insistent that I had to have some free plays because I yeah. couldn't I just can't I couldn't do a show where I am dictated to with every track that I play I just it, it would destroy me it really would I wouldn't enjoy the, the job at all so I was very insistent that we did that and I think with the live lounge that gave us an you know brilliant opportunity to bring through new artists yeah. and show different sides to them and uh, get them well known um, by lots of different people it, it worked amazingly because it felt like an evening type thing but it it was in this huge slot yeah. in 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 the right spot kind of thing it felt like wow how are we how how, yeah. how how's this happening it's amazing i guess radio one was move was changing though wasn't it so yeah. that it kind of just all tied in really it was it yeah. just made sense that i was doing that and there was a real appetite i think for for music people were really open to discovering exciting new things and new artists yeah. um and and that whole thing of having someone do a cover which um i think mark and lard started off when they had travis doing one of their ob's because yeah. you had mark and lard there i mean they were completely irreverent so yeah. it you know that it was the nature of Radio One at that time. Completely. It had just evolved. Yeah, and again, you say the break in new artists. I mentioned it to you when we've we've, we've spoken before, but when you played "Thou Shall Always Kill," it was huge for us because mm. you've got to bear in mind at that point that vocal was recorded in my bedroom at my mum's house. We it was the first track me and Dan had done together. We <laughs> didn't have a record deal. We had a single deal. And that was it. And then John Kennedy played Thou Shout and then Rob the Bank and then Zayn and it's all building. And yeah. then you played it in the biggest slot, you know, on radio. <laughs> and it was like, it was mind blowing for us. And it really, it was such a key part. It meant the world because the, this was a song that didn't have a chorus. It didn't have any traditional verse structures. It had a message though. It, it had yeah, a message. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it, it completely wouldn't have been. If, if we were at a point and we had it at other points in our career, of having a radio plugger, they wouldn't 
have put that forward. Do you, no. do you know what I mean? It didn't fit the kind of structures that you say, here's a radio program. Oh, it needs to be this long and this and that. And it meant so much that a big show like yours could also go, we're playing it and speak passionately about it as well, not be yeah. a kind of... Here's a song that <laughs> Yeah. No, because because everything you know, when you when you only have a certain number of free plays, they yeah. really matter. They really yeah. mean something. So the songs that you play, you have to really care about and really love them. Yeah. And so yeah, whenever I do talk about something, of course I'm passionate about it because I've chosen to play it and I yeah. think it's great and worthy of being played, as in your case. So that. You know, and it's it's such a privilege and I'm so happy that I was able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I continue to today, you know, it's so important to me to have new artists on the programme that I do over at Radio 2. It's it's incredibly important. Oh, that's what I was going to ask n- next about the big move over to Radio 2 because it feels like your home. It feels so perfect yeah. for you, Cunning. Every, every time I tune in, every, again, obviously there's years of experience is going to make you very relaxed and you know what you're doing, obviously, but... How was that move over to Radio 2 and how's it been as you've just got more and more, yeah, made it your home more and more, I guess? Yeah, um, I'm back in that that's time slot, 7 till 9, it's the evening yeah. session time, so it does feel really, really natural. And um, and it's a lovely time because people are just unwinding or they're just pottering around or they're being um, a little bit industrious. So it's a, it's a very special, intimate time to be broadcasting i love it it's Mm. it suits me very well but no bob shannon contacted me first of all when i was at radio one and said i'd like you to come and do in concert he just wanted to get me over to radio two i think and was it was the way that he could do it so i wasn't sure whether it was the right thing to do because it was radio two and i wasn't sure that that was very cool but when he said it was all about live music i thought yeah no that's a natural fit and you know my time will come to an end at Radio 1 and yeah. better to go now before I'm pushed and to make it my decision. So Bob Shannon was hugely important in um, reassuring me and, and helping, letting me do the sh- kind of music that I want to do and kind of show that I want to do. So yeah. it does feel like, you know, and, and also it, it has that feeling of, of graduating, like you feel like Radio 1 is when you're at school and then you go to university yeah. and that's Radio 2 and that's it's been a lovely evolution because that didn't used to happen at all. You know, the DJs yeah. like Janice Long, they had a very difficult time when their, their slots ended at, or their, their time ended at Radio 1 because there was nowhere to go. It wasn't mm. seen. It, it just wasn't a done thing that you go from Radio 1 to Radio 2. So I think I was one of the first people to, to make that move. Yeah. So again, really lucky. And uh, I'm, I kind of obsess over seeing people t- t- taking their choices and their careers in, into their own hands. And again, you're exactly right. It felt like that with your move to Radio 2. It didn't feel as if your time was up and you were being pushed out. Zane also comes to mind. Zane, mm. Zane felt like he went, at some point in the not-too-distant future, I'm not going to be the right person f- for yeah. this show anymore. So I'm going to go and move on. And yeah. I love it's that. about having dignity, isn't it? You, yeah. I, you know, I, I want to have a dignified exit rather than being booted. It's just, um, yeah, but also having control, absolutely yeah. having control over your own destiny and your decisions and doing what you want to do, what is right for you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really c- conscious of time, so I don't want to ramble on too long. But oh, um, that's right, yeah. We're doing all right. One thing I want to make sure I get into is Gl- Glastonbury, because that's another <laughs> one that's just... You've been a key part of of my enjoyment of Glastonbury many times over the years. How's it been to be part of the BBC kind of broadcasting of that? Because you were part of that from when I was jumping over the fence because I was too poor to afford a ticket (laughs) to when I was getting to headline the Queen's Head stage up against Stevie Wonder. So, I mean, mind-blowing that anyone even turned up. But, yeah, so... 
and you were as I said you you were there for so many of those those bits of that of that journey how was that to be part of glastonbury and to be part of that that broadcast because it always you always made it look so, so fun and like you were just genuinely happy and excited to be there yeah i mean genuinely can I just say I'm really sorry I went and saw Stevie Wonder. I didn't see you. I can, it's I'm the right really choice. sorry. <laughs> and on, on that one, and when we did, we headlined a stage at Redden and Leeds and we were up against Rage Against the Machine. And both of those, after we did our big opening song, I then berated the crowd for a good few minutes saying, what are you doing here? This is this is a terrible choice. Literally Stevie Wonder's over there. What, yeah. <laughs> this is what you're doing. But wow. Oh my God. I remember I booked Rage Against the Machine for the word. That was a career oh, wow. high. Oh, yeah. so good. And I had to go over, it, it, Zach, isn't it? The yeah. singer, yeah. yeah. I had to go up to him and tell him that we had to tape over the, the fucked t-shirt that he had on because it was a swear word. <laughs> Imagine that conversation. Ex- excuse me. I bet that me. went down well. <laughs> I, I, when, so when we were doing Redden and Leeds and set up against Rage, the first one, it was the first time we'd ever headlined a stage at a festival. And at festivals, you don't get encores. No. Hadn't crossed my mind that if you're headlining, you do. So we f- f- finished our set. Dan was doing his big outro. I ran off to catch the end of Rage Against the Machine. I then got a furious Dan saying, where did you go? They were cheering for an encore. I couldn't go. I didn't know we were going to get a chance to do that. I was like, oh, I bet I can catch the last couple of songs. <laughs> Music so, fan, you see. <laughs> at Reading next time, I stuck around and we did our encore and it was all lovely. But yeah, Good. exactly. A, mu- a music fan before everything. These were all festivals I, I broke into because I was too poor until yeah. I was being paid to play there. So it was a... It was yeah. a good. It was a good journey, but yeah, yeah. Oh my god, Reading was really important to me. I know I'm going to talk about Glastonbury, yeah, no, but no, Reading was Reading, Red, Reading was my is the one I, I really feel fond about because it was when I was in London and I was just I was trying to get a job and I was probably not even working on the word, but there was a just a, a bunch of us who were really big music fans and they all went on to work at different record labels or whatever mm. and we used to blag our way to the backstage of Reading without fail that Friday they, just the excitement of being there and who could you yeah. see what was going to go on yeah I remember Nirvana I stayed in the backstage bar when Nirvana played I was Amazing. just like how how stupid and naive but it wasn't I don't know I was just so overwhelmed with being there and it was all just so exciting so I feel really fond about Reading I'm completely the same I'd blagged some kind of backstage thing it was I had to pretend to be a guy who worked at a magazine. His name was Ollie something, but again, it was it was early days of ID. Yeah. So I, I had his business card. A mate had given <laughs> it to me, so I was like, right, I'll be Ollie. And me and Dan Dan Lassac, because he lives in Reading, we bumped into each other for the first time since w- w- working together in HMV. And it was there I kind of said to him, "Oh, I'm doing music now." And he was like, "Oh, so am I. We should do something together." So again, yeah. that was a Reading Festival thing that he happened to be backstage, and I happened to be backstage. And yeah, yeah, and I'm sure many, many great musical meetings happened there in that backstage yeah. bar. Of it. Um, yeah. But but Glastonbury. I mean, I went to it when I was at school, so I, I remember getting the coach to go to Glastonbury with a bunch of friends, wow. and we saw Van Morrison and John Cooper Clark, and there was wow. just one one stage. It, yeah. There was a cider van, and it poured with rain, and our tents just slid down the hill on the Sunday morning, and we just packed up and went home. Amazing. But so I. And then we took we took our daughter when she was about eighteen months old, and we had the whole children experience, just the two, mm. three of us. Um, so I was always a, a fan of Glastonbury. And how I'm, much bigger had it got in between those two? Because Glastonbury is just it's a citadel, isn't it? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I I think now of all the people who've got smartphones with step counters on them and, and, and what wonders Glastonbury must do to the rest of their year. There must be just be this <laughs> anomaly in the middle where yes. 
30,000 steps every day because we went from that stage to that stage and so on and so forth. It's exhausting, isn't it? So exhausting. Yeah, but beautiful. You know, I think Emily coming in and just added a whole other dimension to it. Uh, The park area was fantastic. Mm. All those little, um, all the performing artists that are there and the things you can discover everywhere. It's just such an all-round experience. Uh, And I have over the years spent quite a lot of time in the kids' field and the comedy and the cabaret tent because I just love all of that, all forms of art and culture and music. It's just it's just the best. And also I was, you know, my best moments have been with John Peel when I started to do the TV with him and yeah. but neither of us knew what the hell we were doing. We had not a Scooby and it was just us sitting on bales of hay, <laughs> just making it up as we go along. Um, but we had a really good time. And he used That's to tell me amazing, loads of stories all about his yeah. family and, you know, Tom Ravenscroft when he was about six years old, peering through the, the fence, looking at his dad. It was it was really just a very, very special time. That's but, astounding, but, yeah. isn't it? Everyone's yeah. got their amazing Glastonbury memories, but Glastonbury yeah. memories with John Peel. It just yeah. feels like it just takes it all to the next level, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was. I was really lucky, very, very privileged to do that. But it's, yeah. it, you know, it, it's great, and it's grown, and it's just so glossy now. Like the TV coverage is so unbelievably comprehensive; mm. you can see anything and everything that goes on there. Yeah. Um, but with that comes the added layer of fear. So when you're doing the introductions, the TV introductions to some of those bands, the headliners. Oh my God, that's the scariest thing that you'll ever do. Yeah. Like waiting for them to come on stage, waiting to time your intro, remember the words to hit the first drum roll or whatever or the vocals it's bloody terrifying yeah completely again and it is all it does always feel so on the fly it does always feel so kind of flying by the seat of your pants and then totally when when that (laughs) lands how is that then when that intro for the headliner lands and you know the bulk (laughs) of your work's done you know, you might wrap things up, but your work's done and you can just enjoy it now. Yeah. No, it happened with um, with you two when they played and I did, I did my introduction. I actually got a round of applause from the engineers when I walked backstage. They were like, how did you do that? Brilliant. Larry literally struck the drum as I finished my word. It was like I'd, we timed it perfectly. So, yeah, that's possibly my <laughs> the biggest achievement ever. I love it. And and also, it is, it's weird. You talk about the changes in coverage it's weird as well because you have to now take in not only is it going out obviously live as BBC coverage but this will all go on the BBC YouTube and people yeah. like Stormzy's performance or Beyonce's performance all of these that's going to be seen all around the world by millions and millions and millions of people so it's mad how that's all kind of grown yeah. Yeah. within itself you can't let yourself think about that kind yeah. of thing. I certainly don't. Maybe it's just, my, again, naivety and stupidity. But I, I just think, here's Adele. She's just about to go on stage. I've just been given the chance to interview her. So let's, you know, I've known I've known Adele since she started out. Let's just have a yeah. nice chat. You can't possibly begin to think, oh, millions of people will see this because, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be able to speak probably. And they are just people at the end of the day, you know, interviewing Lionel Richie after he'd come off stage. And he's, he could barely speak because he'd been so overwhelmed by the experience that he'd had on that Glastonbury stage. He was just another guy who was completely like, had had the Glastonbury um, experience. I love it. I love it. Well, to wrap things up, what's ahead? What's the plan? Is is it continuing more the same? No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it it is just, I mean, I'm, I'm extremely happy doing the show that I'm doing right now. That I, you know, I don't want to walk away from it. I really love the music I'm playing. I love the bands that I, I speak to and I have playing on the show, and I love the audience. They're really, they're a really great bunch. I like gardening. If I could do some gardening shows, that'd be great. I'd love to see I'll a just... Joe Wiley gardening show. I'm all over that. 
I'll, otherwise, I'll just carry on gardening in my own garden. I'll be really happy doing that. But um, we lost a couple of people over the last couple of years, and that has that was a real wake up call. And you know, the whole mm. appreciation of just having another day to live. Really, you just appreciate yeah. that, and you, and all of a sudden, ambition and everything seems irrelevant. So I, I just want to stay alive as long as I can for my kids and um, and have a laugh while we're doing it. I love it's that. been hard. It's been yeah. very hard. Well, I, I started the chat by asking how you are. I want to end it by just checking in and asking how Francis is. And obviously having got over everything or through everything, how's 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 she doing? I was just looking around to see if I could get my phone so I could tell you how many times she's phoned me today so far. It's like <laughs> six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> she FaceTimes me constantly, which is a good it. sign yeah. because when she was poorly and she wasn't FaceTiming me, that was that was pretty horrible. So yeah. she's good. She lives in her home. She's still, you know, it's not easy. I'm not going to lie. And people should be aware that it's very difficult having someone with um, special needs in their family because... You're constantly worried about them. I'm worried about her running away. I worry about her not being happy. I worried about I worry about the stress that it puts on my mum and dad when she stays at their house over the weekend. I speak to my mum on Monday morning and I'm like, Oh, how was it last night? Did you sleep? And she's, you know, without fail, no, no sleep last night because Francis doesn't like sleeping. And so, you know, my mum's eighty odd now. And yeah. the thought of her being up all night long with my very demanding sister having no sleep is quite stressful. Yeah, of course. Um, but you know, on the flip side, Frances is very entertaining and she's incredibly loving and she's still here and, you know, much loved part of our family. At the times as she's popped up on your Instagram, it's been an absolute joy every time. <laughs> Just she exudes yeah. Yeah. Wonderful yeah. happiness and yeah. Yeah, we DJ together sometimes because mum set up a nightclub and a festival and uh, we DJ together and she's she always wants to talk on the mic. There's me. I don't like talking on the microphone when I'm DJing. <laughs> Francis is always grabbing the mic from me and just going, hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm Francis it. Wiley. And it's lovely. I, I love it. That's beautiful. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time. As said, this is long overdue. I've been meaning to have yeah. you on for a while and I'm glad I'm glad it timed out correctly. So, yeah, thank you very much. My pleasure. I've just, I've enjoyed every single second. I could, I could speak for another hour with you. It's been lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers. (laughs) All right. Lots of love. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Joe Wiley. I hope you enjoyed that as much as both of us did. And I hope you were surprised in places because, as I said at the start, this went in some directions I wasn't expecting it to go in and it was all the better for it. And it was Joe's openness. Big shout out to Annie who who helped set up all the tech side of it. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed that because I really did. I recommend Joe's show on, on, on Radio 2. I've been on a few times recommending podcast and as i said she just feels so at home there it feels like i know she's been there a while now so that's probably why and she's kind of as pro a broadcaster as you're ever going to get but yeah it's good fun anyway i'm gonna go and leave you all to it i'll be back next week where i've got a returning guest i'm going to tell you actually it's k tempest is back k tempest is back and they are better than ever k has been on twice maybe three times i think actually potentially three times now and this is the best conversation i've had with them so honestly honestly i say towards the end i can't remember if it's on mic or off mic that this is the most themselves that i've ever seen them 
and we really got into it. It's a great one. That'll be next week. Um, until then, head over to twitch.tv forward slash Pipio if you fancy it, if you're feeling fruity. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. So until then, and still then, and still then, and still then, and still then, until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.